Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Bannon Garrett. He's a faculty member at Singularity University. And he does a wide range of uh, work on his own, consulting for the World Bank. Uh, and his uh, main area appears to be uh, the long-term implications of technology and global trends. So, Banning, how are you doing? Great. Nice to be here, Richard. Yeah. yeah so, you know, anyone I talk to from Singularity, and they, they seem to attract really high-end people that have a lot of interest in a lot of things. So I can't ask you about everything you do because you do too much, I'm sure. But what are... Um, what are some things you're working on that you, you'd like to highlight and you'd like to talk about? Well, I've been concerned for a long time with looking at long-term global trends. And the kind of trends I'm talking about are environmental, climate change, demographic change, uh, specifically uh, the expanding population and population of cities, urban regions, looking at resource constraints, conflict, geopolitics, all those areas. And then looking at the impact of technology, especially uh, accelerating technology, as the singularity people always like to talk about exponential technologies, meaning technologies that are developing at an exponential pace. So what is the impact of those uh, technologies uh, on the world, but also on the challenges we face from the long-term trends, most of which are quite negative in my view. So they're posing great challenges to us going forward. And my sense is that if we can't harness technology to address these problems, we won't be able to uh, sufficiently respond to them, and we will have a very bad century. 
So that's been my my area of interest. I've worked with the National Intelligence Council on their global trends reports they do every four years that are unclassified long-term trends. We've gone around the world talking to people in some 20 countries over the last decade, uh, trying to get their input on how they see global trends. And then I've spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley and, and in Boston talking with technology people, trying to get their sense of where technology is going. And then the challenge is to sort of put it together and make sense of where we are and where we might go, both alternative futures as well as the sort of business as usual trajectory that we seem to be on. So how do you express your outlook? Do you look at it as like what's going to happen in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Or how do you, how do you break it down into the various outlooks you have? Well, I try to look at longer term trends, um, maybe out 10, 20, 30 years, maybe to the mid-century is probably kind of a benchmark period uh, to look at because we see, I mean, especially the growing population on top of everything else. We already see that we have a serious impact of climate change on many areas of the world, especially in Africa, the Middle East, even China and the United States. Um, and all the assessments are that this is going to get much worse going forward, even if we do address uh, the impact of, of uh, carbon emissions and start to really reduce them. We still have a lot of carbon in the uh, atmosphere that's going to affect the climate going forward for a long time. So this is a, a compounding factor when you add on adding two to two and a half billion people to the global population by 2050. Um, and all those people, the net uh, gain is going to be in cities. And that net gain will be in cities and developing countries. So how do you do that? We're adding 70 million people a year to cities. That's two Tokyo regions a year. And we already have some very dysfunctional dystopian cities, the Karachis, the uh, Lagoses, and the number, you know, many, many others. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to incorporate these people and have jobs and have health care and have uh, reasonable shelter and, and all the things we need? Um, this is a really big challenge now, but looking forward 10, 20, 30 years, it's going to get a lot, uh, a lot more of a challenge. How do we feed all those people? Right now, we have a trouble getting food to everybody on the planet, and we're going to increase the demand by 70, 100 percent. Same with energy. Demand is going to go up, but then producing energy that uh, produced by fossil fuels means that you're adding to carbon, which means you're exacerbating the problem globally of climate change. So you really don't want to do that. How do you get the necessary water to people? We already have water shortages that are affecting at least a billion people. Um, and so you look at all these challenges and then conflict that comes from the famine, from the migration we see, especially in northern uh, Africa and, and in the Middle East, where we have conflict that's been very much exacerbated by climate change, especially the, even the uh, cause of the Syrian civil war seems to include the climate refugees into the cities. So we have a, a huge set of problems going already and going forward. Those many of those are going to get much worse. So that's what I try to look at. It isn't necessarily five or 10 or 20 or uh, specifically uh, time frame, but it's a, it's a longer term set of trends that we have to deal with if we want to uh, try to move civilization into what singularity people call abundance, uh, but you know, abundance for all of uh, food, cl good climate, water, shelter, 
jobs, et cetera. This is a huge challenge now, and it's only going to get a whole lot worse. And to me, that puts real pressure on the technology, uh, not just the community, technology community, but the people. How do you actually take this technology and do something useful with it? How do you use technology to address the water problem, to address climate change, to address food um, uh, provision, to address health care? housing and, and uh, urban regions, all these issues, uh, there are technologies that can help, but they require innovation, they require business models, they require policy, they require entrepreneurs, they require uh, international institutions to help finance them. These are really gigantic set of problems, and uh, I'm optimistic that we can address them, but I don't think that's what we're doing now in, in, in a rate that's going to solve the problems. Well, what you mentioned uh, that there's cities that are already dystopian. What is, what's dystopian about them? I'm just curious. Well, you have cities where you have massive slums where people are, are living in uh, squalid conditions. This breeds uh, both crime and, and uh, can breed disease. We are already, right now, we have a new outbreak of Ebola in, uh, in Congo, uh, Central African Republic. You get that into a city of a million, two million people. And suddenly you, you could get a, a, an Ebola that spreads very rapidly. Somebody gets it on, they're on an airplane, they bring it to the United States or Europe or wherever. This is a really a big problem that's exacerbated by not having a, a, a good health system on the one hand, healthcare and, and public health, and then just having poverty. So uh, that, that, that's part of the problem. I mean, you have lack of jobs, you have the political discontent. Uh, you look at a lot of these cities and they're pretty miserable places to live. And then you can look at Copenhagen and say, there, you've got an amazing functioning city. Half the people ride bicycles. It's a very wealthy city. Uh, there's not the kind of poverty you see even in the United States. So, you know, you have different kinds of cities. But the key point here is that 54% of human beings live in cities now, and that's 4 billion people. And we're going to add 2 or 3 billion more people to cities. How do you do that? To, to provide all the needs that are required. And how do you get governance? You've got these mega cities of 10, even 20, 30 million people. How do you govern those? How do you make sure everybody is, is secure, is fed, all that? I think it can be addressed, but I think you have to start with kind of a, a real uh, clear look at what the challenges are ahead. And they're really huge. And I think that's where the technology community, uh, which is coming up with all kinds of wonderful new technologies and cool stuff, but they're not often connected to the real problems. I mean, instead of starting with, oh, I've got a really cool technology, how can I sell it or, you know, apply it someplace? What if we start with the, here's the problem. We have a, a lack of, of uh, let's say, potable water in Africa in many, many places. How can you solve that problem? How can you develop, you know, let's say, solar-powered portable uh, water purification systems that are easily maintained, that could be franchised, you can train people to do it, you can have them, the spare parts, et cetera, to keep those functioning so that you have clean water for people. Well, that's all technologically possible, but what's the link between somebody sitting in Silicon Valley comes up with nanofilters and somebody sitting in a village in Kenya that doesn't have clean water and the children are dying from uh, uh, waterborne diseases, et cetera. So the linkages there are really important. I mean, that's one thing I would credit Singularity University. The idea was, how do we take these technologies and, and, and harness them 
to deal with the global grand challenges like population growth, like poverty and, and uh, health issues and education, uh, environmental issues, a whole set of, of those issues, which are very similar to the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. How do you really get that technology applied to the problem? And that's not a simple matter, and it's not going very well. Now, so I, I just... Um, so I was going to ask you, is it the technology that's the issue, the deployment of it, but it sounds like the uh, it's really the deployment of it and the integration into actual need that's the holdback. I, I think you're absolutely right, Richard. That's the problem. Awful lot of good technology for, to meet these challenges exists, but the models to actually uh, get that technology deployed are often don't exist or they're, they just are very, very weak. Um, the entrepreneur, for example, I've known people who come up with nanofilters for water. Well, those people are sitting in Silicon Valley. They don't have a whole lot of money. They're trying to get their companies off the, the uh, ground and go through the valley of death, et cetera. And, but they're not connected to anybody in the developing world, for example, who needs the water, the clean water. H how do you connect those people up? And they don't know the people out there. And the people in, in, in the villages don't know the people with the technology. So that is a broken link that has to be addressed. I have a friend who has the Global Solutions Summit, which is going to be held in, in New York uh, June 4th, just before this uh, Science and Technology Innovation Forum, the STI Forum of the United Nations, the two days following. And the Global Solutions Summit is trying to find a way of, of financing and these business models that may exist, but they're not scaled. And now I would say one of the exciting things about what's gone on in technology in really the last decade more than any other time is we have what we tend to call democratized technology. But as the technology has gotten more and more powerful, it's also gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And as you digitize things, you move towards zero marginal cost to produce them. So that means that you have a access in, in Kenya, for example, in Africa, there are already, I don't know, it's 150 million uh, smartphones, or of course, probably nearly 700 million or uh, close to a billion cell phones. But you have technology that has become so cheap, it's available potentially everywhere. So you have ability to solve problems on a small scale, but scalable approach. For example, as I said, take water. You could come up with, instead of building a gigantic water purification plant that might cost you know several hundred million dollars and take 10 years to build, and then serve a pretty limited community, starting with the rich people. If you had scalable, small-scale machines that are solar-powered, that cost a few thousand dollars, serve maybe a thousand people with fresh water, clean water every day, uh, then you could scale that very quickly, just like you can do small-scale solar power on, on buildings, on uh, homes. You could scale it up very quickly, whereas if you're going to build a power plant, First of all, you want to build a, a, a you know fossil fuel power plant, natural gas, or coal. That's going to take again five or ten years, uh, half a billion dollars or more to build that power plant. Whereas if you start small scale but scale up with solar, for example, you can start meeting those needs for electricity very very quickly. So that technology and uh, in, in so many areas now, and of course Uberizing things with. Uh, uh, the connections that are provided by smartphones uh, makes possible a different kind of model of development, sort of bottom-up, better, cheaper, faster, scalable approach to deploying technology and innovative business systems to scale up production uh, 
very quickly meeting these SDGs or whatever global grand challenges, uh, rather than waiting for big top-down expensive efforts financed by the World Bank, run by governments that often are corrupt and taking a good chunk of the money and, and taking years to, to build the, uh, the systems, which are going to be not only technologically, technologically outdated probably by the time they're built, but also just take so long that they're not going to be adequate to meet the growing need as you add, as I said, another couple billion people to cities. So there's a whole new way of approaching solving these problems that, that has yeah. breaks really with the traditions of the World Bank, of, of most governments. Uh, it, probably it sounds like it should be um, more guerrilla and um, decentralized. Yes, it, it, distributed systems. Um, in fact, the other thing I would argue here that I've been talking about what I call peak globalization. And what I mean by that is that I think we will reach a point at sometime in the next decade or two, I'm not sure when, but when the amount of physical stuff moving around the world, liquid fuels, uh, food, uh, uh, products and container ships, toys, all that, the, the amount, the total amount is going to start to peak and decline as more and more energy, food, and product is produced at the point of consumption, which really means city. If you go to renewable energy, of course, as everybody seems to forget uh, to think about, is that the fuel is free forever. No one has a price on the sun. The price of oil, the price of gas does not affect you. You are just, you get free energy as long as other than maintaining that building, building and maintaining the system. So you're no longer dependent on global supplies of sun, of wind. You, you create that energy source and deliver the energy locally. If you do more production of food, and I've just been finishing a, a report on that with a, a leading a, a horticulturist on urban food technology enhanced ecosystems linking right. rural, peri-urban, and urban systems with everything from just much better connection and more efficiency between the rural farmers and the consumers in cities to vertical farms, printed foods, uh, plant-based foods, things that can produ be produced locally and consumed locally to reduce dependence on importing food and build, make create jobs, create good jobs in cities and, and really greatly improve the efficiency of production and distribution of food, which now globally is at least 30% of food is is wasted. Uh, in the developing world, it's perish. It's, uh, it never gets to the market. It dies one way. It it's, uh, perishes one way somewhere along the food chain. Uh, in the developed world, we throw it away or cull it. We don't like ugly foods that may be nutritious, but they don't look good, so you don't sell them in the supermarket. In any case, we're wasting a huge amount of food, and there are ways to using Uberized approaches to connect producers and consumers more efficiently to really enhance the the uh, ability to get food from where it's produced to where it's consumed. But we need to do more than that. We need to produce more food and do it locally. So that's possible. And then you have 3D printing. Well, again, and quick question. This seems like, a, again, a distributed solution. Yes. Is there a, a new genre of problem solving that you could call distributed problem solving? Is there a whole new line of thought that needs to be developed or is out there to solve these problems? It sounds like it has, a lot of them have the similar characteristics on how they could be solved better. I think that what's missing is the bigger picture 
uh, that that I'm trying to outline to you right now of how the of a systematic approach to it that there's a possibility to of addressing these problems with small scale but scalable distributed solutions to them and that's an integrated system if you have scalable solar that could support your greenhouses and your vertical farms in your cities which could then be connected with 3D printing uh, facilities to predict to print out uh, products that people need locally rather than shipping them from China. Uh, so yeah, you have to think of it systematically and see that there's a different future possible. The pieces are already there to some extent and they're getting better. Uh, the technology is improving and a lot of it's building the business models. I mean, you can envision, for example, what about a, a, an Amazon warehouse filled with machines, filled with 3D printers and other types of advanced uh, uh, robotics and, and advanced uh, manufacturing uh, machines so that you send a, a file, could come from anywhere in the world, uh, an STL file, a CAD CAM file, to the printing facility and it, and it prints out the, the product for the local market. And yeah. if you look at it that way, see, the way we do manufacturing now for most things, whether it's iPhones or, or toys, they're made on assembly lines and you know, often in China, a great portion of it's in China. So they produce a lot of them, maybe a thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of the same product. And of course, you can't distribute those locally. You, there's not a big enough market for a million of them, right? So you ship them all over the world. But what if your facility, instead of having to make a, a, a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million of the same thing, every time it made something, it could be different whatever's on demand locally. So your machines, your, your Amazon warehouse or whatever it is in, in uh, Kigali or Lagos or uh, Santiago, it gets the demand from the local market as to what's needed. And then the file is there and they print out the particular item. But the same machine that can make uh, you know, a, a plastic cup might be able to make a, a bed. I mean, it makes all kinds of different things. It's not limited to one item. It can, that's why I call them sort of universal manufacturing facilities. So if you did that, then more, not everything, but more and more of the products that people need could be produced on demand at the point where they're consumed, not shipped all over the world, and then have big inventories. A lot of it's wasted. Of course, the carbon emissions are huge. Um, so it's a different model. The technology is there and getting much better. Uh, so if you thought that that's a vision you wanted to pursue, that's why I say sort of look at it systemically, look at the bigger picture and say, well, is this a better future for us uh, in our city, our country, wherever, to go to where more of this we produce locally from the energy and the food and, and products. If, if more of the product can be uh, can produce locally, then then has all kinds of advantages, right? And it right. seems it's all possible, right? So if you if you're making decisions, that's the thing to think about, Richard. Is that yeah, you know, if we don't, as they say, if you don't know where you're going, every any road will get you. A vision, let's say you think it would be beneficial for a lot of reasons: economic, social, political, and uh, uh, jobs, inequality mm -hmm. issues by having more production locally of the things that we consume. And uh, if you think that's a good thing, then as you plan and you think about the decisions your cities make or your entrepreneurs, you're, you're building toward that vision and rather than something else. Um, you don't build, it's just like if you, if you look at uh, autonomous vehicles, for example, and you're, you're a city planner, you're not gonna build yeah. more Los Angeles. You're not gonna build more parking lots and more and more roads. You're gonna think, oh, gee, we could go to 
uh, on-demand autonomous cars, at least within our city. So we better design our city to fit that possibility, which allows for uh, much more green space, let's say, or just getting rid of the 50 or 60 percent of uh, cities that are devoted to cars. We can reduce that. Our parking lots can be turned into vertical farms or something. So you want to be anticipating where the technology is going and where you would like to go, where, where you want to be. I mean, it's not like you just follow the technology wherever it goes. You say, okay, I want to have a city that's uh, a country and a city that's doing more producing things at the point where they're consumed and there's less waste, there's uh, more responsiveness, there's more jobs, et cetera. So that's part of what we need to do, I think, is to get a bigger picture, look at where the trends are and what the possibilities are and make choices of the technology we develop and deploy and then the way we plan for it based on that, that kind of a vision. So I guess that's what I'm, how I'm answering your your question about distribution. It's a much more distributed system on the one hand in terms of uh, small scale and scaled up, but you also need a vision of where the heck you're going. Well, um, you may have a vision of it, but you know, how do you train other people that you work with or depend on investors, cities, government officials, et cetera, to see the vision and then help you act on it, not not block you from it? And I think that's that's the, obviously the big challenge. I mean, uh, you know, we're in a, in a situation in the United States where on a political level, we're going backwards and we're dismantling a lot of things that we're going to address climate change and environmental pollution and a lot of other issues. So you can have uh, policies, government policies that are going in a very negative direction. So I think you need to be talking about the bigger vision of where you want to go and what's possible and what the implications are of of going different paths. Uh, people are talking a lot about inequality, but they're not really talking about the economic structure or the kind of uh, structure of production that I'm talking about, which might address that inequality issue or help help resolve or reduce the inequality. So you need to have the bigger conversation and you need to have people out there uh, suggesting alternative futures of where we might be able to go that that is desirable. Now, not everybody's going to like the vision, and certainly the the oil producing countries are not going to benefit as we go towards uh, renewable energy. They they depend on exporting oil to this and natural gas, et cetera. And certainly the producers in this country uh, uh, are are if anything uh, very concerned about moving towards renewable energy that could uh, cannibalize their profits. So it, it's not going to happen easily overnight, but I think we we don't tend to have a vision of where we're going, and the tech community doesn't have much of a vision. It just has a vision of what, AR is going to be really cool, VR is going to be neat, you know, AI is going to have all these benefits, but for what? what where, are we, where are we trying to go? What's the problem we want to solve? What, what kind of a opportunity we, we want to seize to make things better, to solve problems and have a better future, and how does technology help us do that? And I think that's what sort of tends to be what's missing. It's the, on the one hand, the people who know about the problems, but know about technology, don't really think about it. And then the technologists who don't really tie it to what human needs are and human problems are, and how can we help solve them with that, with those technologies. There's some people in universities, certainly people at Singularity and others who are trying to make those linkages, but I don't think we've developed much of a vision yet or done it in a very systematic and effective way. And we haven't built the business models, particularly for the developing world, to, to capitalize, so to speak, on these technologies, which can really be transformative. And we've seen 
just to, to make an example, I mean, look how fast the cell phone and then the smartphone uh, distributed around the country. I mean, the smartphone really is 10 years, 11 years old, right? And now there are probably at close to 4 billion smartphones on the planet. Uh, that's amazing. So when the business model is there and people perceive that this is desirable, uh, things can move very quickly. So part of it's, it's having people see the opportunities and the, the need and putting the two together and coming up with new business models, government policies, uh, capital, uh, you know, the, the VCs, there's a role for everybody in this and, and uh, civic organizations. So I, that, that's a, not a satisfying answer in the sense it's a complicated problem and a whole lot of different people involved, different interest groups and different uh, parts of the society. But I think that the uh, the possibility is still there. And, and as we see the need, hopefully, you know, people will step up with a vision and say, hey, this is a, this is a way we could go that would really be. Uh, effective in meeting the challenges we face. Well, what are some uh, big successes? You know, you said the cell phone, sure, but what specific problems do you see it solving? You know, what are some of the successes we could point to and learn from to do this right? Well, I think if you, particularly the, even the, the basic cell phone with SMS was the, the basis of M-Pesa, which is a mobile payment system that started in Kenya, and it's spreading uh, that particular system or ones like it are spreading throughout Africa and either other parts of the world, which in countries, for example, I, I talked with a woman who's the head of EcoCash that she founded in Zimbabwe. And at the time that uh, this is last summer, she told me there are only 1 million bank accounts for people in Zimbabwe, but 7 million people were using this EcoCash for online banking and uh, money transfers. And that would gave people access to, to banking, which we take for granted here. Everybody has bank accounts, right? But they don't have them all over the world. So suddenly the cell phone, which to us is maybe a communication device just to call people, becomes a device for banking, for online payments, and then for information. For you want to know what fishermen were the one of the early uh, examples where they would uh, use a cell phone to find out what the prices were on on the fish at various parts of the food chain so they didn't get taken by the local people who bought them from them when they didn't know what it was really worth. So right. these, and even Facebook, you know, we look at it in the United States is largely something for, you know, your friends and, and uh, family and communicating, you know, with people on a social level. But this is an economic platform all over the world where people build a business around it and communicate with others in the developing countries uh, using uh, platforms, especially Facebook, as, a, as an economic tool. So many of these tools that exist already here are, are being very effectively used and often in very creative ways in the developing world. There are, you know, new models for, for healthcare, for example, using smartphones, AI, et cetera, may really come out of usage in, in the developing world where they don't have vested interests who are trying to block it or you know, prevent it, or, which might be the case in the United States. So uh, there's potential that again because it's so cheap now, it's so democratized and so powerful. I mean, if you look at your cell phone, your your smartphone, your iPhone seven, like I have here, I mean that has more computing power than existed in the world in 1981. I mean, think about that. That's in your your hand, right? And certainly far more powerful than anything that the president of the United States had 10 years ago. Uh, access to all kinds of information, data, GPS. I mean, on and on and on. Learning, AI is on it. Right. And this is in the hands of, of uh, people all over the world. I was totally example by one of the leading uh, agricultural 
technology experts in, in uh, the UK at a conference I spoke at, and she she had been in uh, sub-Saharan Africa in a village, very poor village, and this farmer she met with was illiterate, but he had a smartphone which had icons on it. He could go through his crops and get data on which crops you know needed uh, fertilizers or water or pesticides, um, all from his smartphone. But here's this incredibly advanced technology in the hands of a, of a very poor illiterate farmer using it to to really improve the efficiency of his of his uh, agricultural crop. So this technology can be used in many, many ways to improve the systems all over the world. I mean, we're seeing that, of course, or I'll give you another example that a simple one is a Twiga connects farmers, rural farmers in poor countries with street vendors. And the street vendors are selling, you know, apples, oranges, whatever, vegetables. And how do they get their crop? How do they get their their, their source of, of vegetables to sell on the street? That's pretty haphazard. And how do the farmers know what crops are needed and who needs them and what they should yeah. grow? Well, Twiga connects them and through, you know, an Uberized kind of service. And and it does mobile payments so that everybody gets paid and Twiga picks up the product and delivers it to the vendor who can order it from these rural farmers. Well, that brings much greater efficiency, more income to people, and building it's built on a very simple system. We can use even just plain old cell phones, not even necessarily have to have smartphones. And uh, you know, Hello Tractor allows uh, people to to rent tractors, you know, very primitive tractors on little farms that people could never afford to own a tractor, but they can rent time on it. And it's all done through uh, SMS or in, in some ways and sometimes with uh, smartphones. But anyway, I'm just these are examples where a lot of this stuff is being applied now um, and but needs to be scaled up and done globally. Uh, but I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there working on it, the UN and UNICEF and, uh, you know, even World Bank people trying to find a different model for, for development. I've worked with them on this issue uh, and, and the UNCTAD people. Uh, Octad just released a technology and innovation review report for 2018 that I recommend people to look at because they're trying to look at this sort of bottom-up approach uh, using advanced technology that's scalable and cheap uh, just to really address all the challenges of the sustainable development goals. Okay. Well, all right. So to, to leave off, what are some resources that you'd recommend to help get entrepreneurs and thinkers into this mode where they they can actually solve problems that matter and do it in the right way. Uh, that's a really good question. There's not a lot of resource. I mean, if Peter Diamandis's books, Abundance and Bold, are are interesting, and, and I think that in his basic uh, point, and he goes and interviews all these people in different areas of technology that I've spoken about. His point is that we could have abundance in the world of, of clean water, of food, of good health care, all this. And so he goes and outlines the technologies. But what Peter doesn't deal with, he doesn't deal with policy and politics and, and culture. How do you make these actually happen? Right. So he, he could talk about startups and there's a lot of that discussion. But the, there's no real discussion there of this, you know, uh, creating the linkages between the actual need and the people on the ground that would be able to implement these technology innovations solutions and the people who invent them. So there is a broken circuit there. Uh, I think if you look at the the new, as I said, the technology and innovation review, you can just you know Google that and get it downloaded for free from UNCTAD uh, from the UN. Um, you know that that outlines an approach. 
But we, we need to create a kind of platform to connect all these people. And like I said, the Global Solutions Summit is one effort to do that. Um, but I think it's it's missing, you know, that somebody needs to, to say, hey, we need this platform and we need to put some resources into putting it together uh, so we can connect people and connect the vision and the people with the need with the people who are doing the innovation. And again, I, I stress that I I respect the people uh, at Singularity and uh, and the people who come to their global solutions program and all young entrepreneurs from all over the world who want to find technology that solutions to the big problems that, that we all face. And they're trying to do that. But scaling that up and getting these startups even functioning as a, as a viable business and then scaling them up so that there's not two villages in the world that are using it, but there's 10,000 villages. Uh, that's a big challenge. And I don't think anybody has cracked the code on that. But I think we are we need to have much more dialogue about it. We could we could do it because we can bring together uh, theoretically anyway, and bring together the people who are the implementers on the ground and people with the need with those who have the technology innovations. And in fact, we, what we need to do is not only bring those together, but we need the not just the push from people who come up with cool technology in, in Silicon Valley, but we need to pull people in these in these areas, these regions, these parts of the world that say, hey, we have this need. Can you help us meet this need? So the technology that already exists, can you turn it into something that's relevant to us or build a model, or you can put more effort in science and technology to solve these problems and find scalable, reasonable, good solutions that we can then implement to solve our problem. So we, it's the lack of this network, of this communication, of this understanding between uh, these two pieces, or maybe it's a much bigger set of pieces, but really between the, the need and the people making, uh, developing the technology, that needs to be addressed. And I don't, I may be ignorant. Maybe there's somebody that's really doing this well. I just don't know about it. But I certainly think that's the problem. And I think, uh, you know, to your technology audience, uh, who I, you know, have great respect for, and they're trying to develop all these wonderful technologies, uh, I think that that's the big challenge. How can you, first of all, really tailor, tailor what you put your effort into to, to solving big problems, not just better apps to get your pizza faster, but something to, to really solve the kinds of problems that are facing the world, which in my view are going to get a whole lot worse if we don't start addressing them seriously, because we are headed, I say sometimes, you know, as a civilization, we're headed to the cliff, but we're not going to go over a cliff because nobody saw it. There's plenty of people out there saying, hey, there's a cliff out there. You've got to drive the car to the right, to the left, stop the car, do something different. Because if we keep going the way we're going, we're going to go over that cliff. And I think that's uh, what we have to kind of realize that we do understand a lot. And in fact, I would argue we have never known more about the future as a species than we know now. We know a lot about the future. We know uh, the trends. We know what climate change is doing and what's causing it and what where it's going. We don't know all the details. We don't know what where we might hit a tipping point. We know pretty much what kind of demographic problem we face in terms of growing populations. We know about resource depletion. We know about the what's happening to the oceans and acidification and overfishing and massive amounts of plastic, some 300 million tons of plastic in the ocean that's choking the, the environment and killing the fish. I mean, we know about so many of these problems and we can see the trend of where they're going. So we're not looking at the world from a, a position of ignorance. We know where things are going and, and therefore right. we know what we could do and or at least to start to find the solutions. And I'm counting all, all the young people out there that 
the ones who want to change the world and find the, the business models, find the technologies, but focus on the real problems because we, I think we could have an abundant world. We can go to a world that is much better than the one we have now, not go over the cliff. But we aren't going to do it just by chance. It's going to take real effort and coordinated effort and real thought to where, where we're trying to go. Well, very good, Benny. I really appreciate your, your thoughts and your insight. Um, it's going to take a while to digest this. And um, yeah, I know we're out of time, but I, I, I appreciate you coming on the call. Well, I, this is fun, Richard. I'd be happy to do it anytime. And I'd love to, when do you think you'll actually put this together and turn it into a podcast? Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.